What a joy to see all of you here tonight as we sing to our beautiful Savior. It is uh, an opportunity for all of us in our combined churches to worship the Lord together and to know that Ventura County has very, very strong ministry represented by those of you who are here. And uh, on behalf of Bethany Church on the Hill in Thousand Oaks, we want to thank you for all of your prayers, especially for my dear wife, Beth, who is here with me tonight. And we have the opportunity to know of very tangibly your prayers, not only because you've articulated such, but we have seen, Lord willing, the, uh, the staying of the encroachment of this cancer, at least so that we might have the maximum amount of days that the Lord would give us together. And we don't know how long that is, but we should all, whether we know of any malady in our bodies, we should all attempt to maximize the days that the Lord has given us. We have been going through, as you know, in our fifth Sundays together, some sweet doctrines, and I want to talk about the doctrine of adoption in Christ. And I'm thankful that Errol gave us some scripture that I'll also be referring to in the message. And I want to talk about this matter of being a part of the family of God, being children of God, sons of God. When we normally think of the most important doctrine surrounding our salvation, we usually hear preachers and theologians proclaim God's justification of sinners as such. And it is, of course, quite true that the doctrine of justification is extremely important. Indeed, a massively critical gospel truth about our salvation in Christ. But when it comes to our union with Christ in salvation and our abiding relationship with Him, the doctrine of adoption, according to J.I. Packer, is an even higher blessing and privilege for the Christian than is our justification. Now, does that sound somewhat strange? Because we as the followers on the shoulders of those who championed the reformation of the church extolled, of course, this great doctrine of justification, as well they should. It was a doctrine that had been virtually lost to so many in the church of that day 500 years ago, and it is, of course, so very, very important for us. But Packer contends, and I think he's right on the mark, that this doctrine of adoption is of a higher privilege. And he explains why in that classic book that he wrote in 1973, Knowing God. He says this, as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it, rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher. 
because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. The two ideas, that is justification and adoption, are distinct and adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. This free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. We do not fully feel the wonder of the passage from death to life which takes place in the new birth till we see it as a transition not simply out of condemnation into acceptance but out of bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. Those are wise and true words. Justification is the idea that I have been declared righteous in Christ. And it has to do with the concept of my being in Adam as a sinner. And how justification allows Christ's death to accrue to my account. And that is a forensic idea, as Packer says. It's a, it's a legal tone. It's my acquittal before the judge of all the earth. Adoption, however, is the doctrine that allows you and me to experience God as our Heavenly Father. This God who loves us and cares for us as Father because He's adopted us into His family. And I want to encourage you tonight that this doctrine of adoption, moving beyond the doctrine of justification, even though justification is the pathway to it, adoption is the long road with which and by which our Heavenly Father takes us into His arms and loves us all the way to eternity. This is that sweet doctrine that I want to talk about tonight. In fact, Packer will go even so far as to say about our spiritual adoption these words, the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it. You ever ever thought about the doctrine of adoption? 
You ever thought about the idea that the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of our being the children of God? Well, if not, I just happen to have some passages of Scripture that I'd like to share with you. And I have three of them, or at least three portions, from three of Paul's letters that I want to show you the Trinitarian relationship to our adoptive parenting by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so if you will, I want you to turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 1. That place where we read in our scripture reading, which is so marvelous and wonderful a place to begin. Ephesians chapter 1. If you are taking notes and you want some outline points with which to cast an understanding of the message, the first one is this. What is the motivating basis behind my adoption in Christ? What is the motivating basis behind my adoption in Christ? Here's the answer. The motivating basis behind my adoption in Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is God the Father's love. God the Father's love. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1 from when we read it earlier. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to be able to do justice to all of this, but I at least can share with you some of it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, as was read before, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then this incredibly important statement, in love... He, referring to the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Did you notice there in verse 5 that the Apostle Paul is telling us that the predestining work of the Father is motivated on the basis of His love. I think this is a good translation, and even though there are some translations that put that phrase in love with the previous statement, I think it naturally and best goes here. And what the Bible is telling us is that God the Father, in eternity past, had a predestining work in mind through the counsel of His will, And our Heavenly Father determined that that particular predestining work would be motivated by His love. God's love is the very motivation on the part of the Father. And verse 5 says that that motivation in love brings about that predestining work. And notice what it says, for adoption as sons. You might even be able to translate it this way. In love, He predestined us unto 
adoption to himself. That little word for is the very explanation behind which God is predestining us to adoption as sons. And the very basis for it, the very motivation for it, is because of His great love with which He loved us. Now, I can serve a God like that. I can bask in the relationship of a father who has decided in a pre-temporal way. And aren't you glad of such a thing? Because if He had chosen us as we are in time, I dare say He might have chosen not to. But before we were ever born, and before we did anything right or wrong, God decided in His love, and for the motivating basis or sake of that love, determined, after the kind intention of His will, the Bible says, to place us in an adoptive relationship so that even though vile and wretched sinners... He's bringing us into that relationship through His Son so that we would have the grasp, faintly, undoubtedly, but we would have the grasp of the great love with which He has done so. Are you struggling tonight, even as a professing believer, about whether or not God loves you? That's a very, very common challenge. Even in local churches where the evangelical truth of the gospel is proclaimed mightily, there are times when professing Christian folk have struggles about wondering whether or not God's love is not only there, but whether or not they'll ever be able in their sense of things to grab hold of it again. It's always there. In fact, it was there from eternity past. It was pre-temporal. It was before you and I were born in time. And the Father's love, motivated through and by His grace, was an opportunity for you and for me to know of this grand scope of His love. This is, this is truly a kind of unfathomable love. You don't believe me? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This, this chapter 1 may actually be, in Paul's mind, a, a, a kind of platform, a a stepping stone for you and for me to know of this love because Paul keeps talking about it in every single chapter of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, notice what he says in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Now that is a, that's a hideous picture, isn't it? It's not flattering at all. We're all by nature children of wrath. But notice verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great, what? Love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So now, with the curtain, the veil, having already been opened so that we could see what was happening pre-temporally with this God who predestines His love toward us, now bringing it into time, says to us that even in our Christ-rejecting, God-hating, Spirit-resisting position, that God was so rich in mercy and so great with which this love impacted us that even while we were transgressors of the law, God loved us. God loved us. Could I put it in a present tense context? He didn't just love us in the past. He loves us now. And He loves us because of Christ. This is, this is a marvelous thing. And it's one thing for the preacher just to say, God loves you. And it could be that someone's response tonight, very practically speaking, is, oh yeah, I've heard you and others say God loves you. God is a God of love. But I don't sense such love. I'm someone who's been abused. Someone who's been abandoned. Even in the context of a human adoption. And of course, it could be true that you might have been sinned against very grievously. And it could also be true that you've been mistreated. And perhaps you yourself have mistreated others. And yet, none of those things Even the worst portrayal of us that we are dead in trespasses and sins would cause this loving God to stop loving us. This is is so true that he says it in chapter 3. Do you know that he says, does Paul in his prayer in chapter 3 that you and I, according to Ephesians 3.17, would have Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, that we, all believers, just like these Ephesian believers, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Christ's love. The Father's love. There's there's no dimension that exceeds it. There's nothing that is in breadth or length or height or depth to exhaust 
the knowledge of the love of Christ that actually surpasses your knowledge and my knowledge as human beings in the sense that we'll never be able to know and understand with the kind of fullness the love of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are men and women who might be here tonight who have struggled and maybe are continuing to struggle with the concept, does God love you? It may be in a context where you say, because of my sinfulness, because of my sins not only against God and others, how can He love me? Well, doesn't the text say that He loved you even when you were in your transgressions? Of course. This this love, this precious love, it's real, it's tangible, and it's accessible. Don't doubt the love of God. Don't doubt it. The love of God is greater and higher and wider and deeper that surpasses even the ability for us to plumb the heights or depths the length and width of the love of Jesus Christ. You know what eternity is going to be? Our eternity will be the opportunity to learn and grow to understand the love of God and because it's eternal, it's still not enough time to grow in such love, to understand such love to bask in such love, to be impacted by such love. That's why we're going to be worshiping forever because forever is not nearly enough. This is the love of God. David Garner, who's written a wonderful book on adoption called Sons in the Son, The Riches and Reach of Adoption in Christ, says this, the motive for adopting sons flows from His divine love. God does not need the sons, but He everlastingly loves them from eternity past to eternity future by virtue of the promised and accomplished redemption through His own Son. This this love is, is so full and so wide and so vast and so unmeasurable that this love shall never be exhausted. Chapter 5 says, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Don't ever question or doubt the sincerity of a perfect God who has perfect love and who decided by the counsel of His own will in eternity past to shed abroad by the Holy Spirit His love upon you. If you're a Christian, if you know Christ, and if that relationship is genuine, It's a bona fide relationship with the Lord Jesus. God loves you with an everlasting love. And He proved it with the cross. 
He proved it with the cross. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is, this is the love that I'm speaking about tonight. This is the love that you don't need to have any question and not only assuming is there, but experiencing it. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful reality. Folks, that's the motivating basis behind that love. It's real. Romans 8.39 And anything else, nothing else, will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing else. This is God's tangible love. And do you know how He shows it to us? He manifests it to us in our adoption as sons in the Son. Our justification is incredibly important. But our adoption shows us how to respond to the love of the Father in His household. If you have grown up in a Christian home and you saw a good set of parents who loved you and who wanted to minister to you and showed a wonderful picture of the Heavenly Father as a father and mother would show their love to you to picture that very love? Thank God for it. Praise God for it. And some of you have not had such a picture. Perhaps you've even had the opposite. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My mother, in fact, for all of those years that I was growing up, was a Jehovah's Witness. I did not have a father growing up, divorced, from my mother at the age of four. I didn't have any picture. I didn't, have a, I didn't even have a good picture. And the picture that I had was so dim and faint about God's love for sinners like me that it took me to a place where when I saw Jesus Christ for who He really is and when I saw His wonderful salvation... And when I began to understand what the Scripture says about our adoption in Christ, I said to myself, even if my earthly father, even if this idea of what a home is to be like, even if in this family I saw the opposite of what a spiritual family can be, I know this, God the Father loves me. And I had to learn a lot of those lessons by not seeing it lived out in a home, but by reading and applying it from the very pages of Holy Scripture. And when I read Romans 5, I see God's love all over 
that text, poured out by the Holy Spirit, lavished upon me, given to me in fullest measure. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I hope you write these passages down because the motivating basis behind our adoption as sons is the Father's love for us. Read these passages. Marinate in these passages. Especially if you haven't seen such human love that, of course, is far exceeded by God's own love. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. We're sons and daughters of the King. Our Heavenly Father has nothing but saving love and sanctifying love and glorifying love, eternal love from eternity past in time and throughout eternity future. There is no love like it in the universe. Packer, as I read earlier, speaks of this adoption when he says this, the word adoption appears only five times, that is five times in the New Testament. Yet, the thought itself is the nucleus and focal point of the whole New Testament teaching on the Christian life. And then he said this, were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. That's something to think about, isn't it? Adoption through satisfaction. Propitiation is that wonderful idea that when God saw the sin of everyone who would ever believe, he turned his face away from his own unique, one-of-a-kind, only begotten son so that the wrath of Almighty God upon all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe would be poured out on the son so that the very wrath of God would be forever satisfied, propitiated, dealt with, And through that propitiation, we have the very portals of everything that comes from the love of God. I agree. I don't think we can find a better three-word summation of the entire New Testament, adoption through propitiation. This is God's love. Bask in it. Appreciate it. Worship God for it. Believe God in it. And see the love of God transform your life. Its purpose is to show you how much God cares. Who wouldn't want a father like that? Isn't it so? This is our God. Jesus even said to his own disciples, I now call you friends 
And if you do what I tell you, and if you love one another as I have loved you, you're going to be a part of my family. He's the elder brother. Who wouldn't want the father of love and the elder brother, Christ himself, to show us the very love of themselves so that we would understand such love? This is amazing. This is glorious. And really, that's the major intent of what Scripture is telling us simply about God the Father and His love. Do you want some more? I'm prepared to go on. (laughs) Number two, not just the motivating basis behind our adoption, which is God's love, God the Father's love, but number two, the major requirement for my adoption in Christ, the major requirement. And what is that major requirement? God the Son's redemption. That's the major requirement that gives me access to such love. I mean, if I don't have the Son's redemption, if I'm, if I'm not able to have access to the Father via the Son's death and burial and resurrection, I don't know the Father's love. In fact, I know it's opposite. Wrath. I'm hellbound. I'm wretched and poor and blind and naked, and I have no opportunity to see anything of heaven, anything of the glorious future, any relationship with one another. All I see is misery, and even while on earth, a life of no consequence when it comes to true, genuine, saving love. But if I have Christ's redemption, it opens up to me the very opportunity to see the love of God in action. Turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. This is, this is the Son's role. This is the Son's duty to His Father that shows that that access can be given and that access can be given to folks like us. Galatians chapter 4. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that for the purpose that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is, this is the opportunity for you and for me to understand at what cost the Father's love was shed abroad in our hearts. 
And the cost, of course, was the giving up of his own son for redemptive purposes. You know, redemption, you know the doctrine. The the doctrine of redemption is that we are in, as sinners, the slave market of sin, right? We're in bondage to it. In fact, look over at Galatians chapter 3, and you'll see what has led up to chapter 4. Look at verse 23, for example. Galatians 3.23, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. You see, the law was a, a, a schoolmaster, um, a slave driver. Uh, the law could do nothing but actually show us how sinful we, we are. And this law of God was like the beating of the sun down upon us, scorching heat. It was always and forever reminding us of all of the things that we were doing in breaking God's law. This this is our plight. And before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Do you notice the language that Paul uses there? Captive, imprisoned, So then, the law was our guardian or maybe even our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You're no longer in bondage. You're no longer captive. You're no longer imprisoned. You are now set free. And then he says... There in verse 1 of chapter 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. If you have a slave in your house, and if you have a son in your house, until the son comes of age, the two are as though they're doing the same thing. They're simply responding to the commands of their father. There's no essential difference, or so it seems, from the analogy. And though... He is the owner of everything, this son, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And he says, does Paul in the same way? We also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were, there it is again, enslaved, imprisoned. And these elementary principles are those things by which we think we know how to get free. And those things, instead of giving us freedom, actually enslave us. We're in bondage. We try. Everybody tries. It seems everything and anything, most notably except Christianity, of course, to be free. And they actually enslave themselves all the more. And Paul says, I I want you to know Galatians That in the same way, also we, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, when it was the right time, when God's timetable was set and ready, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. In order that, this is a purpose clause, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I like that phrase there, adoption as sons. There, there's really only the one Greek word for adoption, and it's the combination of two words, huios, which is son, and the second part of that word is from the Greek word tithemi, which means to place into. You and I 
are placed into sonship. And the very way, the portal that you and I are placed into sonship, there's a major requirement before that takes place. And that requirement was the death of God's own son. So in order for you and for me to become the children of God, to become an heir, to become sons in the Son, for us to be adopted as God's beloved children, God gave up His only Son. Does that, does that resonate? I mean, it's so convicting that in order for us to be adopted into God's family and live as the heir to gain the glorious inheritance both now and in the ages to come, the major requirement of such adoptive agency was the death of God's own son. To give up that son so that you and I could be sons in the son by virtue of his death and his burial and his resurrection. I mean, this is, this is the kind of truth that no wonder we've seen that adoption is the highest prize. It's the greatest benefit. It allows us to see that we are sons by virtue of God's own Son who was given up so that we might have sonship. This is, this is almost too much for us. And you say, well, it was the death of Christ? Yes, as a lamb, lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Which means in that pre-temporal existence, God not only in love predestined us to become adopted, but also before the foundation of the world, the Son of God in the mind of God and with the agreement of the Son by the counsel of the Spirit and the Father would indeed come to this earth, make himself of no reputation, and would humble himself in being obedient obedient even to death on a cross so that you and I could be adopted as sons in the Son. This is, this is the kind of truth that takes us beyond justification into our sanctification that canvases the entire breadth of such sanctification because we'll never not be sons and daughters ever again. No wonder it's an abiding relationship. And that abiding relationship means that you and I have the grand opportunity to receive the full inheritance. The full inheritance. Packer says, God adopts us out of free love not because our character and record show us worthy to bear this name, but despite the fact that they show the very opposite. We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of His loving and exalting us sinners as He loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild. 
Yet that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. Adoption, by its very nature, is an art of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. He need not have done anything about our sins except punish us as we deserved. But he loved us, so he redeemed us forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters, and gave himself to us as our Father. It's a wonderful truth that's beyond the conceiving. It surpasses knowledge. And there's even a third work of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And this is the third and final for tonight. What is the manifest destiny alongside my adoption in Christ? What's the manifest destiny of all of those who are adopted in Christ? And here it is, God the Spirit's leadership. God the Spirit's leadership. The Father's love, the Son's redemption, and the Spirit's leadership. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It was read earlier. And Romans chapter 8 tells us so very, very clearly that it is the Holy Spirit who leads us as the sons of God. That's why I've chosen in the outline point to use that idea, God the Spirit's leadership. You know, Romans chapter 8, if you've ever heard someone preach through it, perhaps you have, or if you've read it yourself, or if you've done a study of Romans 8, you know that there is a mention of the Holy Spirit, it seems, on almost every verse. And the Holy Spirit is seen prominently here as well. Verse 12 of Romans 8, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then verse 14, here's the Holy Spirit's leadership. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow or joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the spirit of adoption. This this doctrine of adoption is so important in biblical revelation that the very Holy Spirit himself is said to be the spirit of adoption. He adopts us into his family because the Holy Spirit is himself God. Does, Does anybody recognize and would praise God that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in the adoptive process. Anybody go through the process of adoption? Yes, several of you. 
How would you like to have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as those who are advocating on your behalf with the adoption agency? I mean, think of the Father's love. I'm, I'm advocating for this brother or for this sister because I love them. And as their father, if they become my children, I will love them forever. And I'll, I'll always and forever be perfect in such love. And they shall never be disappointed with the love that I provide for them. Any takers? And if that's not enough, the, the Son of God, God the Son, has redeemed us, bought us back from the slave market of sin, and He did it as a lamb without blemish or spot, so that the Father would be satisfied, propitiated, so that adoption in the Son would make the Son our elder brother. Anybody have a, an older brother with whom you might not have been um, particularly glad about? Because he was the older guy, he lorded it over you? I even see some nodding, yes, yes. And this elder brother of ours, totally perfect, never failing, uber supportive, and who will never, ever leave you or forsake you, and will do everything for you, including the most important, he's willing and in fact has died for you. And if that's not enough, the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of adoption, leads us as sons of God. And what does He lead us to do? I'll tell you what He leads us to do. He leads us through suffering so that we may be glorified with Him. Verse 18, For I consider, Romans 8, 18, the sufferings, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Isn't that most interesting? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And get this, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Adoption is mentioned here in the context that you and I in our lives now groan because the entire creation has been formed in futility because of the curse of Adam's sin. No wonder there are thorns and thistles when you work in the garden. No wonder that there is pain, intense pain in childbirth. And the whole creation itself is groaning until you and I get our resurrection bodies. And we side with creation. Bring it on. I hope it's coming. And I hope it's coming soon. Because I'll have the fullness not only of my spiritual adoption, but I'll have the ultimate fulfillment with the 
combining of my spirit and body together so that I have the most full and complete adoption that a son of God could have. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is, this is the spirit of adoption who's leading us to this. And he's leading us to actually also be conformed to the image of his son. Do you see it in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit do in leading us? He, he leads us to, to recognize our sonship. He leads us to see one day our ultimate revelatory glory so that you and I will get our resurrection bodies. And he also leads us right now in the path of further daily conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul is, Paul is so stunned by such things, he can't stop talking about adoption, and so he mentions it again in chapter 9. He says this, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And notice the very first thing he says about them, and to them belong the adoption. In what sense, Paul? They're the ones for whom the doctrine of adoption was first seen because God says, I shall take Israel as my, my son. And out of that people group, that Semitic people group, the children of Israel, out of that group, God the Father will choose a son with a capital S. And that's none other than the Lord Jesus. And out of that son comes the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This adoption will have a full flowering out of the nation of Israel when the son with a capital S, the suffering servant, will in fact become the God-man, Jesus from Nazareth, who will live a perfect life, who will die a violent death, and who will be buried, and who will be entombed, and who will be resurrected and ascended and coming soon. And we've already known and believed and experienced everything except the coming soon. And we're waiting eagerly for the revelation of the adoption of the children of God in full, complete sonship so that we can have all the inheritance. Is anybody encouraged? The, the, the infinite mind of a loving God the tremendous sacrifice with the major requirement of the son going to the cross and the Holy Spirit leading you and me to such adoption 
so that we would be known as the children of God, the sons of God, so that we might experience one day under the leadership of the Holy Spirit full conformity to Christ-likeness and our bodies and our souls joined together so that we would get the fullness of the adoption that has been promised to us. The Son of God became a human being to join us to Himself in salvation. The Father declared His Sonship at His baptism and transfiguration. When He raised the Son from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heaven, the Father adopted Him by declaring, You are My Son. Today I have become your Father. Psalm 2.7 The eternal Son's adoption as the incarnate Son of God becomes ours when the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ. All the blessings of salvation, including adoption, are ours when the Spirit unites us to Christ, the Son of God, our brother. The motivating basis behind your adoption is the Father's love. The major requirement for my adoption is the Son's redemption. The manifest destiny alongside my adoption is the Spirit's leadership. Praise God for Trinitarian love, redemption, and leadership in adopting us as His very own. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our blessed Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we cannot praise You enough. We cannot thank You enough. We cannot sing more gloriously of what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done for us in creating our adoption to sonship. We're no longer slaves enslaved to fear, the fear of the law and its encroaching demands upon us that we could never fulfill. We cry out to you, Abba, Father, Thank you that you are good and that you do good. Thank you for your love. Lord Jesus, thank you for your redemption. And Holy Spirit, thank you for your leadership to conform us to Christ and to fulfill the promise of the down payment of our inheritance through our heirship, sons and daughters children of God. We praise you and we worship you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.